Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to uh, Romans chapter 5. Um, I want to thank all you guys for praying for me last week. I was, I was out sick with the flu. <laughs> you know, in, in all these years, it's only the second time I've missed a Sunday for, for being sick. And the first time I was doing chemo. So you can just imagine how sick I felt last Sunday not to be here. Um, and I really appreciate Rinda Dean. Uh, for coming and filling in last minute, and I heard that she did a great job. I feel full this morning. I don't know if it's because I missed last week and didn't have an opportunity to share what's on my heart, but I feel like there's so much I want to share with you today, so you know, please uh, be patient and, and gracious with me today. And, uh, I'm in a, a new series of messages on the topic of, of grace. Two weeks ago, we, we began the series, with, was, which is probably the, the classic text on grace from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Um, it, another way we could say that is this. For it is by the absolute, 100% free, no strings attached, unearned, undeserved, unmerited gift of God's favor that we've been rescued by our trust in him. That would be another fair way of communicating that verse. And I kind of spelled that all out for you in that last message. You can find it on the church website. Today I want to take a, another look at God's amazing grace from, from Romans chapter 5. So if you would, follow along as I read verses 12 to 20. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because of sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as, as did Adam who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespasses of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin, and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespasses of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increase, increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the truth that's in your word. Lord, use me today to communicate your message to your people in a life-giving way. Amen? So, so I want to talk about grace today. I'm going to talk about this, this awkwardly worded text of scripture that might be a little bit tough to digest. But it might take me a little while to get there. Um, scripture makes it plainly clear, Jesus makes it plainly clear, that you cannot put new wine into an old wineskin. You can't do it. And the, the text here in Romans 5 is talking about grace and law. You cannot put new wine into an old wineskin. Luke 5, 36 to 39, this is what Jesus says. Speaking of Jesus, it said, he told them this parable. And Jesus said, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch on an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment. And the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the skins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no, no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say the old is better. Wow, powerful verses. Now take note. Now I'm going to get back to Romans 5. But take note. In Jesus' text here, from Luke chapter 5, is that he's not assigning value to the new wine over the old wineskin. He's not saying the new wine is awesome and the old wineskin is evil. He, he's not assigning values to them. He's not saying the old wineskin is awesome and the new wine is evil. Simply what he's saying is that they're incompatible, that they don't match each other. That if you put new wine into the old wineskin, bad things are going to happen. Good things won't happen. Bad things will happen. And so, listen to me. The price of the new wine is the old skin. If you want the new wine, now for 40 days now we've been crying out for more of the presence of God on Prince Edward Island. Another way to define that is, Lord, give us new wine. If we want the new wine, the cost of the new wine, and there's no way around this. If you want the new wine, the cost is the old skin. <coughs> Otherwise, you can keep the old skin, but you just can't have the new wine. What Jesus is saying is you can't have both together. Not that one's good or one's evil. They are simply incompatible. They don't work well together. The old rejects the new. We know this. We've, we've seen this our whole lives. The, the church is filled with, with a clear demonstrations on how the old rejects the new. Judaism had a real hard time with the incarnation. Jesus showed up, as it were, as new wineskin. And he did not fit in, excuse me, as new wine. And he did not fit into the, to the old wineskin of Judaism. They, they were incompatible. And, they, and because of it, boy, it was in constant clashing. Just in my lifetime, I've, I've seen moves of God come and moves of God go. When the Catholic Charismatic Renewal came on the scene in the 
the late 60s and early 70s, it was complete, this whole new spirit-filled move of God on the earth. It was reject, rejected by classic Pentecostalism. They would have nothing to do with the Catholic Charismatics. They, they had no box for God com coming in the power of the Spirit and falling on Catholics. My goodness, they prayed they pray to Mary. What, what, are we, what are we supposed to do with these people? I can remember Bob Mumford, you know, just classic Pentecostal teacher of the word, wonderful man of God. He's like, he's like, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. You're filling them with your spirit, and I don't even know if they're saved, right? And so I, that was a real dilemma. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us then. Let me tell you, 40 years ago, that was a pretty big deal. I, I was raised up in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, and we made, oh, did we make a mess? We made all kinds of mistakes. And you know why? Because we were a fatherless move. I mean, we had our Heavenly Father, make no mistake, but we didn't have our earthly fathers. The men and women of God who had raised up in the move before us and should have nurtured us and should have come around us and loved us and encouraged us and fathered this new move of God, abandoned it. Because the old wineskin was rejecting the new wine, the fresh new thing that God was doing. They didn't like it at all. It was messy. It was different. I tell you what, we're, we're a vineyard church, the Charlottetown Vineyard. When the vineyard first came on the scene, freaked people out. What do you mean? You got people up there leading worship and they're barefoot, and it looks like they need a bath. How could they possibly be leading worship? And the songs they're singing, they got drums and electric guitars. This was so out of the box. People are raising their hands. I don't get it. Most people, you could go online still to this day and type in the Vineyard Movement, type in John Wimber, and I'll bet you on that first page that comes up on Google, there'll be at least a few that accuse the Vineyard and John Wimber of being a cult. It was, they were not well received at all. It was new wine. And the old wineskin, the stayed, the true, the time-tested, the well-established, despised what God was doing in the Vineyard. And I wish I could sit here this morning and tell you that the vineyard handled things perfectly. But you know what? About 20 years later, Toronto popped up. And this whole new, fresh expression of God. And you know who had a problem with it? John Wimber had a big problem with it. And some of the main leaders in the vineyard movement were really upset with John and Carol Arnott and the people in Toronto. How do I know? Because, God help them. They're, they're, they're sending these correspondence to one another and posting them online. And I would read all of it. This is what this one would say, and this is what that one would say. You would think with all of the abuse that Wimba took as the fresh move of God, that when something else popped up, he'd have grace for it. Now, I love John Wimba, don't get me wrong. But they blew it. Man, they blew it on Toronto. And I'm not saying Toronto was perfect. It was messy in the beginning. People were making funky sounds and shaking on the floor. and it was, They were really coloring outside and messing up people's boxes. It was another new wine, old wineskin conflict. By the time Toronto showed up, the vineyard had become an old wineskin. And so this new wine shows up in, in the form of what God's doing in Toronto, and it really upsets people. We have a long history of doing this. So what happens now? now? I look in this room, I know some of you, you've been following God for 30, 40, 50 years. Like me, you've seen moves of God come, 
Who's it going to go? How are we going to respond the next time the Holy Spirit shows up? How are we going to deal with it? Are we going to get as upset as the Pentecostals were, as people were at the vineyard, and as the vineyard was at Toronto? Or, or can we learn the lessons from the past and not make the same mistakes all over again? Now, look, old wineskins are good. I've never personally had a wineskin, an actual wineskin. Metaphoric wineskin, I certainly have. But, I mean, if you think about it, if you've had a wineskin for a long time, it's served you a long time. It's, it has served you faithfully. It, it's been dependable. You can carry it on your hip. Maybe it's formed to the, to the shape of your hip. And you like the wine that's in that skin. It, matter of fact, it's much better than the new wine. Anybody here make wine? If that wine's sitting for a while, fermenting for a while, at the right time, it's going to taste a whole lot better, the old wine. The scripture even says that. The old wine's going to taste better than the new wine. Why? It's had time to mature. It's had time to ferment. Of course it tastes better. People are, they're comfortable and they're familiar with the old wineskin. They know what to expect. So the old wineskin's good, but the new wine is good too. It's fresh, it's new, it's vibrant, it's bubbly. And therein is the problem. The bubbles are pushing against the walls of the old wineskin. And that old wineskin is not very flexible anymore. It's pretty set. It's done its thing for a long time. It doesn't like the bubbles. It doesn't like when it's vibrant. It doesn't like when its, when its walls are being pushed. Matter of fact, it cracks. And it very well, very well could and probably will split because of the new wine. Both new wine and old skin are good. They just don't work well together. Now this is true anytime you try to put something new into something that's well established. Anytime you try to put something that's brand new into something that's well established. Anybody ever try to install a new operating system on an old computer, right? I've crashed more than one computer in my lifetime thinking, it can handle it. I know it can handle the new operating system. Oh, system crashed, right? Off to buy a new computer. Sometimes the PC crashes. Have you ever worked on a job, especially jobs that run on, on computer systems? Some, some uh, you know, inventory system or... I used to be a material coordinator for, for Northrop Grumman. And so we would have to track down, down to the you know, most minute detail part for for aircraft, using military aircraft, millions of parts. And it was our job, my job, to make sure that all the parts were in the right place at the right time so that the, 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 the sub-assemblies could be built so the aircraft could be built on time and on budget. So it was a big deal trying to track all those parts and all those numbers. Well, in the middle of production, Somebody in upper management had the great idea of saying, we need a new computer system, you know? So it was crazy because the new system did not integrate at all well into the old system. And so for, the, for about six months, I, now instead of having one computer, I've got two because I still got to run the old so we can get the job done. 
Well, the new one is coming up to speed, and we can finally get, get all the information on the new system. Anybody else ever been there where they change systems on you? Matter of fact, for those first six months with the new system, production actually went down. It, actually, it made my job a whole world harder. It's very difficult to put something new into something that's already well established. You ever work someplace and you get a new owner or a new supervisor or a new manager? Maybe there's a whole team of people working there. There's 10 of you, 12, 20 of you guys, and you're all used to working together and doing things a certain way, and a new manager comes in, a new supervisor comes in, and they say, we're going to make some changes around here. Oh, boy, messes up everybody's world. Maybe they change scheduling. Or maybe there's new tools that you have to use. Or they don't want you to do things an old way that you've always done it before. And you know what? They might be right, the manager. They could be wrong. You're sitting there thinking, I've done this for 20 years. What is wrong with this guy? He has no idea that if we try and do this thing, this new way, it's going to have all these problems. Right? It's very difficult to put something new into something that's old and well-established. Often there's conflict as a result. Now Jesus said in that text from Luke 5, he said, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Jesus doesn't offer anything in this analogy that describes a way where the old wineskin and the new wine will work together. He's telling us unequivocally they absolutely will not work together. And that if you want the new wine, what it will be required of you is a new wineskin to hold a new wine. Otherwise, you'll lose both. You'll lose the old wineskin, and you'll lose the new wine. You cannot put grace into law. You cannot put the new wine of grace into the old wineskin of the law. It would be like trying to stuff an elephant into a Ziploc sandwich baggie. It's just not going to fit. It was never designed for that purpose. You cannot put authentic, relational Christianity demonstrated in the life of Jesus and stuff it into a performance-based, institutional, religious structure or system. They're incompatible. They will never work together. They will always fight against each other. It just doesn't fit. Because that's not how loving relationships work. You can't put new ways of thinking into old ways of thinking. What we need to do is what I said from the beginning of the year. We need to forget the former things and not dwell on the past. We need to see that God's doing a new thing, and now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? That's from Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Now look, you have choices. You can, you can choose the new wine or the old skin. And either one's a fine choice. But if you choose both, you're going to lose both. Isaiah 43 says that God's doing a new thing. So what do we do? We've been a Christian a long time. I've been on this journey a long time. I kind of fit into this mode of how I do things and the way I like it. And, and what happens when, 
When it, it's, not, it's not like something man's initiated, but when God initiates a new thing. Look, God initiated the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. It was a God thing. Millions of people, including myself, came into relationship with Jesus Christ because of it. Pentecostals hated it. It was God who initiated Toronto, as messy as it was. And it really upset some people in the vineyard. So what are we going to do if, if I'm right? And what I sense God was saying for Charlottetown Vineyard from the beginning of the year is God's doing a new thing. If it's God doing a new thing, there very well may be some old things that we got to let go of if we want to survive the new thing. Now I told you the first couple of Sundays of the year, my sense was this, that change was at hand. That God is bringing change. And I told you, look, it's always easy to prophesy change. And it is. But I felt it really strong. I felt it strong enough to say that, that for 2015, that change is going to be significant for us. And it is. And that what we'll need to do as a body going forward is we're going to need to trust God. We need to trust him in the midst of change. Because it's not Tom's doing a new thing. It's that God's doing a new thing. I think... And we've already seen some significant changes. I think a new name is significant. A new website is significant. I think those are outward signs of inner changes. We've started new groups. And the whole 40 days of prayer and fasting being done corporately, I'm, we ought not underestimate how significant, how powerful it is that God's doing that in our midst. So we need to trust God. As he, as he brings about change in our midst, we need to trust him because change is disruptive of the status quo. It is. Change disrupts the status quo. And some of us have a really hard time with it. Some more than others. Most of the time, from my experience, people are not at their emotional or relational best when they feel disrupted. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. If we're going to engage and embrace change, we need to keep our hope in God. We need to keep our trust in God. He's really good. He, we have a good God. He absolutely loves us. He's with us. And he's for us. We can change him. Now, as a church, man, we've been in transition since before I got here. <laughs> and it's not over yet. I came as someone new, as something different. And, and I've tried to fit into something that's well-established. And for some, it's been, it's been a difficult journey. Now, we're all good people. We are. We all absolutely love God. It's just that the old and the new sometimes find it difficult to coexist. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's not that one, at all that one's good or one's evil. It's just that one is well-established and a new element is brought into the mix. And it makes it difficult for us. Do you understand? When the old and the new clash, it's tempting for us, especially in the church, to, to blame one side or the other. And I think that would be foolish. I think it would be short-sighted. I don't think it would be accurate or true. I think what we're looking at is new wine in old wineskins. We're, we're looking at a new element being introduced into something that's already well-established. I mean, the, Charlotte, the church here, now known as the Charlottetown Vineyard, 
It was 10 years old when I got here. That's, that's pretty well established. There was an identity, and there, was, there were people who identified with the group, and there were certain ways of doing things. And Brian had his own flavor, and he was really good at what he did. And I came in, and guess what? I was a Brian. And even if, even if I didn't come in with a bulldozer saying, I'm going to change this and I'm going to change that, just my presence up here alone was change enough. Don't you know? It's the nature of the new to push on the boundaries of the old. That's what the new wine does in the old wineskin. It pushes against the boundaries of the old wineskin. It's the fermenting bubbles of the new wine. And it's the nature of the old, the well-established wineskin, that served faithfully for so long to resist the pushing. Choosing the confines of the well-established, the tried, the tested, the dependable, the known. Neither new wine or old wineskin are evil. They're simply doing what's in their nature to do. So Isaiah 43 tells us that God's doing a new thing. Not man's initiation, but God's. Why am I saying all this? Are you ready for it? Are you ready for God to do something new? Are you emotionally ready? Are you relationally prepared? If we want the new wine, if we want whatever is fresh and new that God's going to do on Prince Edward Island, that for 40 days we're crying out for more of his presence, if we want that new, it's going to cost us the old. The new wine comes at the expense of the old skin. There's no two ways around that. I wish I could tell you there's, a, there's an option C. You could choose the new wine or you can choose the old skin. You cannot have both. Jesus said new wine must, must be put into new wine skin. So to navigate this season well, as we go forward, and I don't really know what it looks like going forward, but I know this, we're going to need the grace of God. We absolutely need God's grace. We're, we're going to need his grace on us, and we're going to need to especially be gracious toward one another. Because some of us are going to get pretty annoyed at the bubbles. Because it's pushing on our boundaries. And some of the, the bubbles among us are going to get pretty agitated that the boundaries aren't given space for it. Because that's how we are as people. We're going to need to have grace for one another. All too often, I've seen that relationships are the casualty when we mix new wine with old skins. And I don't think it needs to be that way. I believe that the new wine, metaphorically, is the new thing that God's doing. The old wineskin? The old wineskin is simply this. It's our personal preferences. It's our style. It's our well-designed systems and structures. It's our music. It's our buildings. It's our liturgies. It's our traditions. It's our understanding of scriptures. It's our way of doing ministry. That's our old wineskin. You could probably add to that list, but I think it defines it fairly well. Jesus showed up on the scene, and for the Pharisees, he messed with all that stuff. He messed with their systems. 
Like, look, when you go into the temple and turn over the tables and chase people out, that's messing with their system. They, they had a system. They had a money-making system. They had, they had a pretty lucrative thing going on, right? When he stands up publicly and looks at the religious leaders of the day and he calls them whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones, that's messing with their system. And, and they, they pushed hard against him. Again and again and again. And I didn't look it up in the Luke text there right here, but in Matthew 9, Jesus, Jesus shares this, this parable as it were of the new wine and the new wineskin because he had, he had dinner at Matthew, the tax collector's house. Remember Matthew? Matthew's there with all his sinner friends, prostitutes, sinner friends, at the tax collector's house, Jesus having dinner. And um, the Pharisees, they're all upset. They're, thinking, they're saying, how come, asking the... Jesus' disciples, how come your master eats with sinners? And Jesus tells them, it's the sick who need a doctor, not the righteous. So he answers their question. Then another group pops up. It's John's disciples, right? John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. This is the last move of God. This is the move of God that had just come. It was really fresh, short lifespan. Last move of God is having a problem with this fresh move of God, which is Jesus and his disciples, and they're having a feast at Matthew's house. And so John's disciples say to, to Jesus' disciples, how come you and your master don't fast the way we fast? You don't do things the way we did it. And in, in response to that, Jesus tells them the story of the new wine in the new wineskin. So the context of the verse here is Jesus saying, I'm coming as something new, and I don't fit into something old. He's saying, I'm the new wine. And the problem that you have with it is that you're the old wineskin. Can you see that? And he says, if you want the new wine, you need to have a new container, a new system, a new structure, a new way of doing things that's designed for the new wine. Not for the old wine. And there were people in that room watching what Jesus was doing. And if you asked them, they would have said, we like the old wine because it tastes better. It's been around longer. I'm used to it. And they would have preferred the old wine of Judaism to the new wine of Jesus. I'm, I am just as susceptible to that reality as they were. How about you? That's why, people, we need to hold loosely to the past. We're asking God for more of his presence. And our old ways of doing things are going to be the expense of it. So I told you from the beginning of the year, this is what I felt was God's message to our church for the new year. He said, he told me that the winds of change were blowing again. And that we needed to hold loosely to people and to possessions and to position so that our hands would be free to catch what's coming on the wind. He could have just as easily said it this way. I need you to lay down your old wineskin because I'm about to give you new wine. And you need to be free. Your hands need to be free to receive what's coming. This is not easy. This is not an easy thing. Most people don't handle change well. Church people, most of all, we don't like change. 
We like what's dependable. But God likes to shake things up every so often. Now, I believe God's coming to do good stuff. He told me at our first 40 days gathering, he told me that he's coming to redeem and to restore and reconcile. This is what's coming on the new end. This is what's going to be the fruit of the new wine, that he's coming to redeem and to restore and to reconcile. To redeem. He's going to take what the enemy meant for evil and use it for good because God alone has the power to make all things work together for good for those who are called by his name. He's able to do that. He can redeem. He's coming to restore. And my sense when he shared this to me is that whatever you've lost between 2011 and 2014, that there's restoration for those things that were lost in 2015. And the last thing is he's coming to reconcile. I believe he's, he's coming to return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the mothers and fathers. God's in the business of reconciling broken relationships. We'll see them healed. All of these things, all of it, is an expression of God's amazing grace. So, with that as a very extensive introduction, <laughs> let's take a brief look at Romans chapter 5. We need to understand grace. Now, it sounds like it sounds like embracing the new wine and letting go of an, eye, un, an old wineskin seems insurmountable. It seems way too expensive. But I want you to know that there's grace enough, and that's why we pick, I picked these verses today. <clears throat> so, in verses 20, 12 to 21... Paul is explaining the gospel using the language of two men, the language of Adam and the language of Christ. Paul provides a contrast between what Adam produced, the work of Adam, and what Christ produced, the work of Christ. In verse 15, it says this, But the gift is not like the trespass. This, the gift of Jesus is not like the trespasses of Adam. For if the many died by the trespasses of one man, Adam, how much more that God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow the many. He's saying what the, what the old man, what Adam did was significant. What came by grace is much more significant. And he summarizes his point very well in verse 19. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Christ, the many will be made righteous. That's a pretty good summary, right? There was sin with Adam and Eve. Jesus came and made it right. There was an impact on humanity because of what happened in the garden, and there was a profound impact that took place because of what happened on the cross. In verses 20 and 21, Paul addresses the purpose of the law and the reign of grace. If you like to study scripture, Romans chapter 5 is a wonderful text. I would encourage you to dig in. You'll just find riches beyond your imagination. But this morning I want to focus on verse 20. Verse 20 says this. The law was brought in 
so that the trespasses might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's a profound statement. That's a pretty earth-shattering statement. The law increased sin. That's what it says. I'm not reading anything into it. I'm not twisting the words. The law actually increased sin. Isn't that something? Now, you haven't broken a law unless there is a law. Think of it this way. If there's no speed limit, then you can't break the speed limit, right? If you're on a road, I've never been on one, but there are places in the world where there's no posted speed limit. You can go as quickly, you can go as fast as you want to go. You cannot break the law of speeding if there's no speed limit. Where there's no law, there's no sin. Where there's no speed limit posted, there's no violation, no matter how fast you go. In Galatians 5.1, Paul wrote, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The yoke that Paul's referring to here is the system of religious law. That's the yoke of slavery that Paul's talking about. The religious law, the old covenant law. To this day, even as spirit-filled, born-again Christians, we love our rules and our regulations. But consider this. Every time the church creates more laws, the Bible says sin increases. Every time we create more rules, more laws, more regulations, all we've done is set up a system where those rules and laws can be broken. And by that, sin increases. It's only our need for control that makes this work. So, so let me tell you a story. A story of new wine, of freedom and grace in an old wineskin of strict religious rules and regulations. So I was the new pastor at a church. And it was our first Sunday there. And, um, and after the service was over, a young couple with some small children asked Nadine and I if we'd like to go have lunch uh, at their house. And we thought, sure, this would be great. We'll, we'll share Sunday afternoon lunch together. We'll get, to, we'll get to know this new young family. They were delightful. The kids were adorable. And so we get to lunch, and the, the gal's mother is there. And I hadn't met her before, and um, I didn't really know her uh, um, we would, we would later become good friends, but I didn't know her at all uh, really that day. And, and so we're sitting there for a few minutes and trying and get a sense of the picture. We're new. We don't know anybody. They all know one another. And so we're new to this church. We're excited about being there. And just before the food gets served, the mom looks to me and says this. She says, under the old pastor, we were told that we're not allowed to be friends with this one couple. Eight years ago, they were asked to leave our church by the pastor, and when they left, the pastor told everybody in the church that none of you are allowed to have any contact or be friends with them anymore. And I'm just, my eyes are just like this big. <laughs> and she said, so I want to know, now that you're here, can we be friends with them? I'm on the spot here, right? And I'm thinking, wow, there's a whole lot more to this story than I know. But I looked at her and I said, look, as far as I know, this is still America and you got freedom. Far be it for me to tell anybody who they can and can't be friends with. I said, you can be friends with whoever you want to be friends with. I couldn't care less. 
And it was like, woohoo, you know, like uh, the chains are gone. <laughs> like we sang this morning, you know. <laughs> My chains are gone, I've been set free. And so I, I didn't really give it much of a second thought. Well, over the next few days, the word kind of, you know, trickled out that, you know, the, you know, the, this, this, uh, this has been, <laughs> rebel rouser, you know, the, this restriction has been lifted and, you know, they could be friends with these people again. Well, don't you know that in that church, there were some people who were very happy that this was, that this was my understanding. And there were other people who were very upset with me. How could you do that? You know, don't you know who the old pastor was and, and what he said and what he did and how important it is and. And I was like, I know him. He's a friend of mine. I think he's a great guy. I just, I just can't. It's not in me to tell people who they can and cannot be friends with. And so this kind of percolated in the church for a couple of weeks, and we had our next elders meeting. And so at the elders meeting, the two elders who are very good friends with the former pastor, they were very upset with me <laughs> that I said that people could be friends with whoever they want to be friends with, and that I wasn't going to tell people who they couldn't, couldn't be friends with. They were... They were pretty upset, and they wanted me to get in the pulpit on Sunday and tell people that the old rules were back in place and no, you're not allowed to be friends. And so I said, oh, God, I, I need your help. I really need, I need your help, Jesus. And so I looked at the two guys, and this is what I told them. And it, it was the Holy Spirit just kind of came on me in the moment. I said, guys, listen. I said, if I have to make a rule, that means that if I got to put a stop sign in place, that means I have to construct a stop sign. I have to install the stop sign. I have to monitor the stop sign. I said, and I have to punish the violators of the stop sign. I said, that's way more work than I want to do. I said, how about if we do this instead? How about if I take people to the intersection and I say this to them, you know what? This is a pretty busy intersection. My recommendation to you is that you look both ways before you cross the street, because this is a dangerous intersection. And by the way, if you choose to cross the street and get hit by a truck, come back and see me, and I will love on you, and, and, and it'll be okay. I said, look, guys, this leaves the people responsible for their own spiritual growth, and I'm not trying to dictate to people what they can and cannot do. And they both kind of looked at me and cocked their head and said, you don't think the way we think. I said, no, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think the way you think. And so on began our journey there of new wine going into an old wineskin. It had its struggles. But I think it's better to give people the freedom to make their own choices. And even if there are consequences, let them live with and deal with the consequences. And then my job as pastor is to love them anyway. I'll just love them. I don't want to be the church's moral policeman. I don't, I don't want to do it. I, I never signed up for that. I, I don't want that job. Matter of fact, I think it's arrogant of me to think that it was ever my job. You're grown-ups. You're not babies. You make your own choices. What I'd rather do is this. I want to be a matchmaker. I want to help you fall madly and passionately in love with Jesus. I want, I want to help you know him like you've never known him before. And then if he wants to change something in you, if he wants to adjust some moral behavior in you or not, that's between you and him. It's really none of my business. Not unless you come to me and say, hey, Tom, I'm having a hard time with this. I'd like it to change. Can you help me? Then I'm like, sure. 
I'm happy to help you. Sit down. Maybe Dean will make a cup of coffee. We'll talk. It'll be good. But your relationship with God is your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. I don't want to control. I absolutely don't want to control. I want to bring freedom. I want to communicate, communicate a message of love. I want, to, I want to communicate love and grace. So back to verse 20. The second half of the verse says, but where sin increased. And see, the problem there is even though the rules went out that you're not allowed to be friends with that family, some people in, in the shadow of darkness, when nobody was watching, they, they would go be friends. And then they would come to me and say, I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I feel shame that I broke the rules. Right? Where the law increases, sin increases. But verse 20 says, but where sin increased, grace, uh, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Sin increased, but grace came in over the top. Sin saw your bet and raised you, and grace went all in <laughs> with the winning hand. Grace increased all the more. Listen to some different translations. I, I love the way... The term grace increased all the more is said in different translations. New American Standard. It says the law came in so that the transgressions would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. New Living Translation. God's law has given us, God's law has given so all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. It's more abundant. Darby's Bible translation. But law came in in order that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace has over abounded. Amplified Bible. Love the Amplified. But then law came in only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition. But where sin increased and abounded, grace, God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it, and increased the more and super abounded. I like that phrase, super abounded. One more, the, the Aramaic Bible in plain English. But where, but, but there was the introduction to the written law that sin would increase, and wherever sin increased, there grace super abounded. I like super abounded. It reminds me of some of the verses we looked at last time in my first message on grace from Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. It says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man, I love the way grace is described in these verses. God's grace, it's not weak. It's not cheap. It's not lacking. Is there anything expressed in these verses that gives even the slightest indication that God's grace is somehow weak or thin or slim or fragile or insufficient or cheap? Nothing whatsoever. It's super abounding. It's abundant. It's rich. It's amazing. His grace is not in short supply. It doesn't matter how vast 
our supply of sin might be. The greater the sin, the more superabounding the grace. Guys, God is better than we previously thought. He's more good. He's more loving than you could ever have hoped for or imagined. He's more gracious than we ever deserved. Let me give you some biblical expressions of superabundance and then we'll close. I know sometimes we wrestle with the superabundant grace of God. This kind of extravagance would seem like foolishness to our rational minds. But we have a God who loves us with a great and lavish love. Consider creation. He created all that exists, the entire universe, that he might have a place to meet with us. That's superabounding. What else does Scripture say about the way our God operates? Isaiah 59, 19 says, When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Sounds like a great Old Testament rendering of Romans chapter 5. When sin comes in like a flood, the Holy Spirit raises up a standard of superabounding grace against it. That standard is what we call grace. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. That's a really good description of his nature toward us. He blesses abundantly in all things, at all times, having all you need so that you will abound. We have a good God. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Verse 20 says, immeasurably more. How much more is immeasurably more? It's infinitely more. It's more than you can measure. Than all we can ask or imagine. How vivid is your imagination? I got a pretty vivid imagination. And he has more. Not only does he have more than your imagination, if we could combine our collective imaginations, we wouldn't come close to scratching the surface of the immeasurable that he has for us. This abounding grace. Another example. How about the loaves and the fishes in Luke chapter 9, verses 16 and 17? It says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke them. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate. They all ate. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. They didn't get an hors d'oeuvre. They didn't get an amuse-bouche. They all ate and they were satisfied. They got the full meal deal. They had supersized it. They all ate and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of the broken pieces that were left over. What a beautiful picture of God's nature. What an amazing illustration of his great grace. Twelve basketfuls, to me, sounds like superabundance. After you've fed thousands of people, doesn't that sound like superabounding? That's a whole lot. The grace of God is truly amazing. 
if you follow me at all on Facebook, you know that every, every day I put, up, I put up some quotes. I've been collecting quotes for, I don't know, a decade now. I have over 240 pages of quotes that I've collected. And right now, I'm somewhere around page 140-something. I just start at the top, and each day I go through the list, and, and I pop up on Facebook what's ever next. Sometimes it's amazing to me the timing of God of what comes up. One, uh, one person who I think just has this incredible grasp on grace that I love to quote is Ro Father Robert Farrer Capon, New Yorker, amazingly brilliant mind. And this is what he says concerning grace. He says, may we always run the risk of overemphasizing grace, for it is a risk that will never be realized. Oh, Lord, let that be said of me someday. May we always run the risk of overemphasizing grace, for it is a risk that will never be realized. That sounds like a super abundant, a super abounding grace. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? If God has been this lavish in his grace toward us, his superabundant grace toward us, maybe, just maybe, we can be gracious with ourselves. Think about the ways that I've described the grace of God today. It's huge. It's big. It's amazing. It's incredibly powerful. It's limitless. If he can be that gracious to us, can you be gracious with yourself? Maybe it really isn't all about our performance or how good we are. Maybe it really is all about how good he is. And maybe it's time, maybe today's the day, that you allow yourself to fully accept this free gift of God's superabundant grace. What is it? What is it today that you're struggling with? What is it that you struggle to forgive yourself over? I want you to know there's good news for you today. There is super abundant grace for you, and especially for that area of your life, that very thing that came to mind just a few seconds ago. Right now, this very day, there's super abundant grace available for you in that place. That's our Monday morning takeaway, that his grace is that good to us. So let's close our eyes and let's pray. Lord, your word says that where sin abounds in our life, that grace superabounds. And so, Lord, each of us this morning, there's an area of sin, there's a problem area, there's an issue, there's a struggle, there's an obstacle, there's a hindrance, there's stuff that we've been wrestling with for way too long. We kind of beat ourselves up over it, Lord. And what we need is your superabundant grace. Let us, in practical, tangible ways, experience the reality of what your word calls your superabundant grace in that area where sin has, uh, has increased in our lives. Would you do that, Lord? Would you completely set us free? Lord, would you set us free from the rules and regulations of religious traditionalism? Set us free, O oh God. Lord, set us free to live love and to live love. Set us free, O oh God, to live in the fullness of your abundant grace. Set us free. Lord, set us free from fear. Set us free from the fear of man.
And Lord, we want to extend grace to our brothers and sisters. Lord, we love them. Lord, for some, they've been new wine, and, and their new wine agitates us to no end. And Lord, we ask that you bless them today. And to, for others, Lord, their wineskin is so irritating to us. And Lord, we ask that you bless them. Lord, we ask that you would come, and in this super abundant grace, Lord, we want you. We, we really do. It's the one thing we all agree on. We really want you, Lord. We want the real you. We want the authentic you. We want you with nothing held back. And Lord, so we ask for super abounding grace, all that we need to be able to hold you and to embrace you and to contain you. And so, Lord, we, we pray the stupid prayer today. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how expensive it is. Lord, I don't care what it takes. I want you. I want all of you. So hear our prayer today. No matter how painful, no matter how expensive, Lord, we really want you. Later on, I'm going to tell you I didn't want this, but I'm not going to be in my right mind then. I'm in my right mind now. And my right mind now is saying, Lord, I don't care. That's how much I want you. So don't listen to my prayer later when I'm whining that you're actually answering my prayer. Lord, I want you. I want all of you. Lord, as we've been crying out for these 40 days, we ask for more of your presence. We want your manifest presence. Lord, I ask for more of your manifest presence inside of me, oh God. I ask for more of your manifest presence inside each member of my family. Lord, I ask you for more of your manifest presence right here in the Charlottetown Vineyard. And Lord, we ask for more of your manifest presence on Prince Edward Island from tip to tip and from shore to shore. And Lord, we ask all of this with your super abounding grace in mind. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Um, much appreciate um, all of you, and thank you for loving on us last week when we weren't feeling well. Enjoy the Super Bowl today, and if anybody here likes Sheila and Errol, help them clean up because I, I don't want to see them get hurt.